Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In 2012, a new charity bursts onto the scene. It's called Believe in Magic and it grants wishes to seriously ill children. It has the support of the biggest boy band in the world, One Direction. It's run by an inspirational 16-year-old girl called Megan Bari, who herself is battling a brain tumour. I've been in and out of hospital and seen so many other very poorly children. But when questions arise about her story, they reveal she could be facing another very different danger. What is this girl going through? It wasn't supposed to end like this. Listen to Believe in Magic with me, Jamie Bartlett. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Fifteen years ago, 23-year-old Norwegian student Martina Vik Magnusson was killed in an apartment near Mayfair. 23-year-old Martin Vik Magnusson was found partially buried in the basement. Before being questioned, the only suspect in the case had fled the UK to Yemen. I made a promise to Martina's family to find out what happened. Murder in Mayfair, part of the documentary. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcast. Okay then, I'll lead off. Welcome to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm James Gallagher. Hi there. Hi. (laughs) Now, I know I should do a lot more exercise, but experience tells me there's just not enough hours in the day for me to do it. So here's my crucial question. What's the least amount of exercise we can get away with while still staying healthy? Yes, I've got the lazy person's guide to exercise. And I started off by going on a well-being walk. So you're a regular, Mary? Yes, I am a regular walker, yes. So how far do you go? Two and a half, three miles regularly. I do every week. Okay, so you're fully committed? Yes. What's the benefit? Well, it keeps you healthy. I mean, I suffer with asthma, so if I have an asthma attack, I know when I'm down. Going out for a walk lifts you, you meet other people and you get yourself out of yourself if you live alone like I do. Can I ask you a question, Mary? Yes. Thinking purely about people's health, how little exercise do you think the human body can get away with? Oh, my goodness. Well, you've got to get up, so that's a bit of exercise. (laughs) Mary, thank you so much. You've cheered me up on a sunny day. (laughs) It's nice to meet you. So I'm Charlie and I'm the Community Development Officer for the Wellbeing Walks. I'm just navigating some dogs. Do you see people who have done no exercise at all? Yeah, we've had quite a lot of people who might not have done any exercise for many, many years. Once they start to walk, it builds up their confidence. And a lot of them reported two to three stone weight loss over the space of about nine months. Wowzers. And that's mainly with just walking. So you really see the difference of people going from, say, like doing nothing to just doing even a little bit? Yes, massively. And it's really good with the walks, with the cost of living crisis at the moment, because all our walks are free. The benefits are not just physical, obviously, it's mental health as well. Yeah. Oh, I love it when dogs get sick. I don't know why. Oh, no, the dog's in the water. Let's get over the bridge. I'm very clumsy. We've seen those swans grow up. The probability of me ending up in the water is high. Love the jumper. Yeah, yeah. On this walk now, how are you feeling? Good. Not too fast. Hard going now, though? Yeah, which is good. So, Keith, thanks for leading us on the walk. One of the shortest ones. You broke out the short one for me. (laughs) Walking helped me a lot 
I lost my wife nearly two years ago. Mm. Got me out. Keeps me fit. You're looking good. Yeah, not bad. 76. Don't mind the train. What do you think, as somebody who does a lot of this, what's the least amount of exercise you can get away with that's still good for the body? I don't know. <laughs> Sleeping? <laughs> I think that is good for you, that's true. Well, I don't know the answer to that either, so let's see if we can find some scientists at the University of Portsmouth that can help us delve into this idea of what's the least amount of exercise we need to stay healthy. Hi, I'm Dr Zoe Seynor. I'm a reader in clinical exercise physiology in the School of Sport, Health and Exercise Sciences at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Thank you for inviting me in, Zoe. I'm going to be honest, I'm intimidated already because, like, I'm going to go meet some scientists. It's like, oh, no, former elite rugby players, Zoe. <laughs> My job is not to scare you. So I'm looking forward to it, honestly. But I want to know, am I asking a stupid question in the first place? Because raised in the office, kind of like, what's the bare minimum exercise people can get away with? And suddenly every head turns around like me, because I want to know the answer to that. But when I walk in here and go, how lazy can I be? I think you're asking the question that everybody comes in and asks us. In terms of, I guess, declaring where I sit at the beginning, I'm very much about we should be doing something. And especially post-pandemic, we undertook some studies looking at what people did during the lockdown period. We know that people weren't achieving the physical activity recommendations for health. We know that we need to do some intense exercise to improve fitness, but we know that most people aren't achieving those. And when we go down to children, majority of our young people aren't achieving anywhere near the physical activity recommendations. So we must kind of change our message to something that's less intimidating. And hopefully by the end of the day, we'll give you some simple fixes that you can take away. So, so just talk me through what we're going to do today and then we can turn me into a guinea pig, which I think is the plan, right? <laughs> so what we want to do in the lab, first of all, is we're going to measure some of your components of fitness that we know are really important for health. Put How well through. are my heart and lungs performing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So your heart, lungs and also your muscle. So one mm. of the big things that we often forget that's so important, especially as we age, is muscle function. And then we'll talk about your findings. So if you take a seat, James, we're just going to measure your resting blood pressure first of all before we exercise. I have to be honest, it's the biggest treadmill I've ever seen in my life and making me have my blood pressure taken opposite it is probably not going to be an accurate result. So we usually get this kind of white coat effect or excitement effect before exercise. So if you just relax your arm down there, there you go. So I know that you do do some exercise. I used to make sure I did one 5K run a week and then I moved close to a swimming pool so I switched to doing a weekly swim. And if I'm very good, I'll do both in a week, but I'm not very good. You are quite representative. We all have busy lives and even those of us who really want to fit structured exercise in, that's mm. really challenging. So we'll see how fit you are today. Look there's, at a plan there's of There's a look of glee in your eye while you say that. <laughs> I'm excited. So you've got a healthy blood pressure. Our next step, we're going to do a test, hopefully to exhaustion, on our treadmill. Confession, I've never been on a treadmill before. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we'll start with a nice slow um, warm-up to get you used to that. Going to get harder, progressively. Every five to ten seconds, I'm going to increase the speed of the treadmill. I think, judging by your face, <laughs> that, uh, you're really excited about this exercise test, so we'll get going. I, I'm just glad it's radio, because I'm pretty stricken with horror. But yeah, let's give it a go. First of all, we're just going to pop this on to measure your heart rate during exercise, and yep. this should increase to nice high numbers. And when we talk about these short, sharp bouts of exercise that can have great health benefits, we're going to let you have an experience of feeling what that really is like to do. 
So we're going to yep. connect you to our metabolic cart. Effectively, we're going to measure everything that you breathe out. Yes. It's a gas mask. Yeah, <laughs> it is a gas mask. In look. So we are really interested in your oxygen uptake. So that helps us to measure aerobic fitness level. So we talk about maximal oxygen uptake or your VO2 peak. That's your gold standard, how fit is James aerobically. And that represents your ability to take in the oxygen for your heart and lungs to deliver it to your working muscles, which on the treadmill there's a few more than if you're on the bike, and then your ability to use that oxygen during exercise. So we're looking to create a nice tight air seal mm -hmm. around the face mask. So can you see without your glasses, I, I can do a treadmill without my glasses. Okay. Very excited to be your first person to put you on a treadmill. But yeah, you feeling ready? Give it a go. For a starting pistol. <laughs> I, w I wish I had a starting pistol. How does that feel? This is faster than I walk. Is it faster than you I walk? Think so, yeah. <laughs> so you're giving me lots of insight already, Jake. We're going to break into kind of a slight jog now. Great job, James. There we go. You're looking like a pro now. <laughs> I do not feel like a pro. So as we'd expect, we're seeing some of your kind of physiological responses are creeping up a little bit now, which again is a kind of indicator of your health. We should yeah. be doing that. So we're seeing things like your heart rate, your minute ventilation creeping up you'll start to blow off more carbon dioxide, for yeah. example, and I work a lot clinically. One of the big things is, do you have a healthy response during exercise? And thus far, you're looking nice, your data's looking good, and you actually Starting look like you're enjoying it. in my legs. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been going for a little while, so you're doing really well. But from here on in, the next few minutes of exercise will start to feel a little bit more challenging. So. Okay. You can stop the test. I might do a little bit less talking for a bit. You can definitely do less talking. How does that feel on your legs? Legs aren't happy. Yeah, and generally? Heavy. Awesome. So we're going up towards the kind of, what we call the business end of the test now. Okay. So this is where we see how high your fitness scores are. And we're going to carefully take our feet to the side of the treadmill and we're gonna stop you there. And I probably know the answer, but how were you feeling at the end of the test there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so nice deep breaths, really important that we measure your recovery now. I feel worse now than when I was running. <laughs> so nice deep breaths. Look how quickly you're coming back down and that's all really great to see. So you're looking nice and sweaty, James, after that exercise test. I am dripping. Rub my hand across my face and it is completely soaked. <laughs> I, I don't mind. There's nothing we want to see more than somebody who's worked hard during the exercise test. Nice and sweaty, nice and red. So did you enjoy that? No. Okay. <laughs> we appreciate the honesty. So now, James, we're just going to measure your muscle strength. So what we're going to use is this hand grip dynamometer. So it's a nice, simple test. It's a whole day first for me. Okay. We know that from a health point of view, hand grip strength is a fantastic marker of your health. All I'm going to ask you to do, can, squeeze right? as hard as you can. Trying to hold it for about five seconds. Keep going, 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 and relax. <sighs> fantastic. <laughs> On the dot. Well, Zoe, that's the last of the measurements. I'm going to let you crunch the numbers, figure out how fit I am. Once I go catch up with Mark Hammer, who's a professor of sport and exercise medicine at University College London, 
because he's got a new study out that's been looking at people who don't really do formal exercise. They don't go running or swimming or cycling. And they've been wearing activity monitors to see what bursts of vigorous activity do for their health, just those things that are part of our day-to-day lives. Hi, James. What did you find? We specifically looked at people who report that they didn't do any structured exercise. So these were sedentary people. But what's interesting is when you put a wearable tracker on them, you pick up a slightly different pattern of movement than you would in a sort of regular exercise because it really consists of very short, sharp bursts of movement over the day. What are these bouts of physical activity likely to be? Is this when day-to-day life gets intense? That's right. So... The sorts of things we think this could look like is playing with your children, playing with your pets, taking the stairs instead of the lift, carrying some heavy shopping, a bit of a dash to catch your train. For us, we're interested to see whether that very intermittent type of activity is actually linked to any sort of health benefit. We followed these people over time, on average about seven years follow-up. The people that are displaying this intermittent activity that can reduce risk of major diseases such as heart disease and cancer by up to 50%. That's not bad for doing the dishes, the laundry, you know, the hoovering and playing with the kids. Absolutely. Does this tell us, Mark, what kind of like the least amount of exercise somebody needs to do in order to actually have a positive benefit on their health? I think it probably does. I mean, over the last sort of decade, the guidelines have been slowly edging away from the message of 30 minutes a day and more towards the message of anything counts. And I think these results back up that message. Is that in a way quite empowering? Because I, I, I this is my personal opinion. You, you, you've probably got one as well, Mark, that just some of the physical activity guidelines are very intimidatingly large amounts of exercise if you're used to being on the sofa all day. Absolutely would agree with that. If you've never exercised before in your life and you're suddenly confronted with a message that says you've got to accumulate 150 minutes a week it certainly is intimidating and it's fear of bringing back those PE cross-country running sessions. I hated so those. So I know I think most people are absolutely haunted by those so I think it's about sort of trying to repackage the message. For just over four minutes interspersed across the day you can do short bursts of activity probably is enough to give you some sort of health benefit. Has exercise almost become like a toxic thought? Exercise definitely has connotations that puts off a lot of people. So these results back up that message, anything counts. So James, we've put you on the treadmill, you've done your exercise tests. We have put you through your paces and your body's responded beautifully. And I've polished off a banana and an apple in quick succession as well. <laughs> We've reached that point, Zoe, where you know pretty much exactly how fit or otherwise I am, right? Yeah, and I, and I say that looking at you, James, knowing that you're probably a bit apprehensive and, and you'll hear people talk about your VO2 max, and that's your ability to take in the oxygen, deliver it and use it in the muscles. If you were an elite athlete, especially somebody like a cross-country skier, we see levels up to 70 or 80 millimetres per kilogram relative to body mass. We've seen numbers of you today of 46. I'm half a cross-country skier. You're more than half a cross-country skier. That's a fantastic score. And when we look at the evidence base over the last kind of 30, 40 years, there is a clear relationship between your aerobic fitness level, your longer-term kind of mortality, but also those key things. So your risk of cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases like diabetes, 
And then when we look at your hand grip strength, so you had around 49 kilograms, which is actually excellent. I need to start bragging about this board a bit more. You need to, but you also need to remember, and I think we all must remember, this isn't James, the elite athlete. We have different structures. This is exercise. James, the person that sits at a desk what exactly? all day yeah, for work. Yeah. But I also know you do regularly try and do structured exercise. So just to be clear, my structured exercise training is going for a swim once a week. Generally, that's fantastic. I guess my question to you would be, how hard do you push yourself when you go swimming? Not as hard as the treadmill. <laughs> well, I think the big thing, if we come back to this question of what is the least I can do, there's clear evidence that if you want to do shorter exercise sessions they need to be of a higher intensity right so there's a trade-off and i think that's the really important thing for people to remember but we have to look more generally at this 24-hour day and when we think about kind of behavior change it's all about getting you as james to do something that you're going to stick to over a long period of time right and we know that sedentary time is really not great so if we come on to your data because you sent me a uh, like a fancy watch in the post to wear for a couple of days it was a fancy watch so in our daily lives we can wear lots of different wearable technology now in terms of your numbers or kind of the big key take-home points from the activity watch that you wore when we think about the physical activity guidelines there's this big focus on that 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity across the week and If you wanted to do less time, you'd be looking at around 75 minutes of of vigorous or higher intensity work. You managed to achieve on average, across the time period you wore, one minute of of vigorous intensity exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Which which we laugh, but that's a situation you see often. (laughs) That's pretty poor. If we then look at But it's very hard to do that amount of vigorous exercise if you're working. Exactly, and maybe you're too tired at the end of the day to do that intense exercise then we look at the other bits so i can also tell you you only did on average 16 minutes of moderate intensity uh, activity on those days i can pretty much guess that's how long it took me to walk to the train station (laughs) walk to work and then do that journey in reverse okay and you know again that's a picture that we see time and time again in lots of people living in modern society right where we look at then is we had on average, 12 and a half hours of sedentary time. That's not sleep. That's yeah, just sedentary sleep, period, yeah. yeah. So your sleep, you were pretty good at sleeping. So on average, around seven and a half hours a night. Don't sacrifice sleep at the expense of your physical activity because we often see this relationship between the two and sleep is key for our health. Where we tend to look as a first goal for people is we want to reduce your sedentary time. That's way more achievable as a goal If we're replacing that firstly with some of the light physical activity, but ideally with the moderate, that doesn't feel as challenging as what we've done with you today. So when I came in here looking for a number... There is a number, and I think we learned a lot from the COVID pandemic, and our lives totally changed. Many people's activity levels dropped to kind of below 2,000 steps a day. Even as a retired elite athlete myself, I was struggling to achieve 2,000 steps per day very quickly we can see people's fitness drop and their risk of some of these um, diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes increase. And we often talk about this 10,000 steps a day and that is formulated on a number of decades of evidence. So I think the minimum you can do, I'm a firm believer of five, 6,000 steps. I know there was some recent data from here in the UK. They looked at if you go up in increments of 2,000 steps, will that, in a person who wasn't doing anything, was there an additive health benefit? Yes. 
What we're worried about now is that there are people not meeting around 5,000 steps a day. Step goals are fantastic if people aren't doing anything. And if you can get an environment, whether it's go for a walk with your friend, go somewhere nice, that you don't have to think of it as exercise, that breaks some of those boundaries initially. So especially people who have office jobs are sat down all day, we then look at some of the easy wins. So active travel. And even if that's parking a little bit further away, one of the exciting areas in the literature that, that's coming out at the moment is actually walking faster. So if you have no time to suddenly do 10,000 steps a day, can we get you to do 5,000 steps faster? Will we see an improvement on your health? Yes, we will see an improvement on your health, especially over a longer period of time. The big focus around short, sharp exercise sessions is you get more bang for your buck. And that's before we think about the mind. We know that exercise is a, a hugely beneficial tool to improve our mental health. And whether that's inside, but additional benefits we get from blue and green space, it's around by the, by the sea. And thanks so much to Zoe Sainer for having me in the lab. This is Discovery from the BBC. And next on my lazy guide to exercise, I'm off downstairs to meet one of Zoe's colleagues in the Extreme Environments Laboratory. And I'm quite looking forward to it because I'm getting into a hot tub to see if we can simulate the effects of exercise while paddling around. <laughs> Lovely shorts, James. Definitely taking my kids swimming, pink flamingos. Kids love them. I'm Thomas James and I'm a researcher here at the University of Portsmouth and uh, getting you nice and warm and some nice warm water. Kind of giving me a hot bath. Yes, basically. <laughs> hot bath. Right, let's get in then. We want you nice and relaxed. This sling wraps around you, coddles you, and we attach it to a winch, and we just winch you up a little bit, move you across over the pool, and we lower you in, and uh, then you sort of suspend it in the water. Why do you want to put me in hot water? First of all, if you can't exercise, then a hot bath would be a good alternative to gaining some health benefits. Those that have little time to exercise, ideally you could uh, do exercise and then have a hot bath. The two together would have the biggest benefits, but certainly if you can't exercise, this we hope will act as a mimic. Here we go. Never done this before. Oh, that's warmer than I have my bath at home. <laughs> yeah, so that's about 40 degrees. Oh, this is hot. Arms in, everything in. The only thing that's out is your head so you can breathe. It's a fairly important <laughs> yeah. part of uh, human physiology, yeah. So 40 degrees is warmer than your body temperature. Hot water covering your whole body. Your main way of losing heat is through sweat. I can feel it on my forehead. Your forehead, yeah. The problem your body has now of trying to lose heat is that the sweat that's being produced on all of you that's inside the water is not being evaporated away. So you are sweating still but yeah. it's not cooling you down. Hot water is actually particularly lethal in this respect. Like a spot away, if you kept me in here long enough... You'd get too hot and you'd die of heat stroke. So my body's trying to lose heat now, but it's not doing a very good job of it. No. The only way you're losing heat right now is through your breath and through the sweat on your head. Yeah, and so when you exercise, your core temperature rises also because your body creates internal heat. So we're just doing that externally, but either way, your internal heat rises. And when your internal heat rises, your body is essentially working harder to try and keep you cooling down. So your heart rate will increase because your blood's distributing to other places and you just need a greater volume of blood being pumped around. As far as your cardiovascular system is concerned, like yeah. how healthy your heart is, is getting to that the same? Your heart will be working 
that hard, similar to that of what you would see with light intensity exercise. So your heart's working that hard, you're burning extra calories, you get an increase of about 50 calories per hour. Now the other benefit to this is that when your heart pumps faster, you're also increasing blood flow around the body. Now again, that's driven by you getting hot, again similar to exercise. And when you create an increase in blood flow like that, Yes, it's good for the heart because the heart's beating faster, but also it's good for your blood vessel health too. And uh, we see through all the studies we've done in healthy people and now starting to do studies in clinical populations that actually we're seeing reductions in blood pressure. Even in healthy people, you're seeing when they take a heart bath, both acutely just after one, but if you do it repeatedly, you see reductions in blood pressure, and that's down to improvements in vascular function. Sounds like a no-brainer. Yeah, it, it is. And for those that cannot exercise or for those that struggle to exercise for whatever reason, this is a really good way of mimicking some of those benefits you get from exercise. But the evidence is certainly pretty clear that exercise is best. and that Bring the two together. Bring the two together and you get the biggest health benefit. So going to the gym or going to exercise class and then jumping in a spa facility afterwards... A scenario like that would be best for your health. My muscles aren't going to be any better off, are they? No, well, not as good as exercise, for sure. But there is a tiny bit of evidence out there now that suggests that it may possibly help preserve muscle mass and muscle function, something, again, that needs to be teased out. Safely at home, at the moment, you know, if you go to a spa, you say don't do any longer than 20 minutes. In terms of trying to do this as a treatment for your health, don't go, oh, I'm going to stay in here as long as I can because we don't know how to do it safely. You don't want to suffer heat stroke and certainly someone that might have underlying health problems, you do not push yourself to the point where you're going to cause yourself some damage. So do it for enjoyment. That's what it's always been used for. And I say, if you look to any sauna or jacuzzi, it's usually like 10 to 15 minutes, depending on whether it's a steam room, jacuzzi, sauna. We've got you in there and fully immersed here. Um, yeah, and then my bath at home. Maybe your, your legs be out, and of course then the bath cools. But so then that's why hot tubs seem to be a good idea because you can get full coverage and the uh, temperature stays high. Again, another thing to consider also when putting this into practice. Essentially, when we then get you out, you're at risk of passing out because the blood pressure drops. You want to be very careful, but we don't get people out too quickly. Some of this up for me, Tom. Is this a funky, weird idea, or is this actually something you think is going to benefit? This is definitely something I think is going to benefit. And, and healthy young people, if you do that and you make it a habit from the beginning and lifelong, especially if you're sedentary, I think it will benefit them. But I think as you get older, this will become part of a healthy ageing habit. I think this will really play a big part in the future. And for certain clinical groups, I think it'll be fantastic. And it's really simple. And you're having a lovely time there, I hope. Uh, I'll be honest, I think I've come out of having the lovely time, time. stage. Okay, we'll, we'll, slightly... You're getting a bit warm. We'll get a bit warm now. I've got cold spray for you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that quite nice. I can tell you what, I am going to sleep well tonight, both after all of that running, but also the hot bath, it surprisingly took it out of me after I've been in there for a while. Now, I found that quite fascinating, really, the idea you can use a bit of hot water to simulate the effects of exercise. Now, if you try it at home, 20 minutes is as long as you want to be doing it for, and I don't want anybody fainting when they get out of the bath. 
But I did find today really fascinating and actually quite reassuring that even increasing the amount of exercise we do by even quite small amounts does have a noticeable and quite significant effect on our health. So thank you for listening to this edition of Discovery from the BBC. I'm James Gallagher and the producer was Erica Wright. In 2008, 23-year-old Norwegian student Martina Vik Magnusson went missing after a night out with friends in London. I wonder what on earth could have happened. We were so obsessed with just finding her. Then... Police investigating the murder of a Norwegian socialite in central London. Hours after her death, the only suspect in the case fled the UK to Yemen. His name is Farouk Abdelhaq. He's never been questioned by the police. Nobody's been able to speak to him. Until now. It got me, like, feeling a little bit sick to my stomach. I've never been open. I'm Noelle McAfee, and I've been following this story since Martina was killed, making a promise to Martina's family to find out what happened. Murder in Mayfair. You can listen to the whole story now. Search for the documentary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In 2012, a new charity bursts onto the scene. It's called Believe in Magic, and it grants wishes to seriously ill children. It's run by an inspirational 16-year-old girl called Megan Barry. Just wanted to give them the magical experiences back. It has the support of the biggest boy band in the world, One Direction. Believe in Magic quickly becomes a household name in the child cancer community, putting on parties, sending thoughtful gifts, even organising trips to Disney. Every single child there felt like they were so important and they, they weren't poorly, they weren't in a hospital. It was out of this world. Megan is adored by all those she helps. She had more sympathy and love for people than I'd ever met anybody before because she herself is extremely unwell with a life-threatening brain tumour. Her handbag was so heavy, none of us could ever carry it, and it was full of medicine. When something doesn't add up about Megan's story, a small group of parents start to question whether Meg is really ill. I'd call it a witch hunt kind of thing, asking questions like, which hospital are you in? They know that they're not being honest about her illnesses, we collectively said, we won't let it drop, we'll find out this time. But is Megan actually facing a very different danger? It's just awful. It's really not nice listening to that, was it? What is this girl going through? I'm Jamie Bartlett, a journalist and author, and together with the producer Ruth, we've spent the last year trying to get to the bottom of what really happened to Megan Barry and her charity, Believe in Magic. I cannot for the life of me understand why you've done what you've done to us. It takes us on a journey far stranger. I just saw a Mercedes, but I thought it was it. That's not her car. It's not a car, is it? And far darker than we ever expected. I know what the truth is. I've read the records, and they just come in and lie to me. It wasn't supposed to end like this. Listen to Believe in Magic. 